0: Chapter 1 of With Cortez in Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. With Cortez in Mexico by G. A. Henty. Chapter 1 A Startling Proposal On March 3, 1516, the trading vessel, the Swan, dropped anchor at Plymouth. She would in our days be considered a tiny craft indeed. But she was then looked upon as a large vessel, and one of which her owner, Master Diggory Beggs, had good reason to be proud. She was only of some eighty tons burden, but there were few ships that sailed out from Plymouth of much larger size, and Plymouth was even then rising into importance as a seaport, having flourished mightily since the downfall of its once successful rival, Fowey. Large ships were not needed in those days, for the only cargoes sent across the sea were costly and precious goods which occupied but small space the clothes of the flemings the silks and satins of italy the produce of the east which passed first through the hands of the venetian and genoese merchants and the wines of france and spain were the chief articles of commerce thus the freight for a vessel of eighty tons was a heavy venture and none but merchants of wealth and position would think of employing larger ships In this respect, the Spaniards and the Italian Republics were far ahead of us, and the commerce of England was a small thing indeed in comparison with that of Flanders. In Plymouth, however, the Swan was regarded as a goodly ship, and Master Diggory Beggs was heartily congratulated by his acquaintances when the news came that the Swan was sailing up the Sound, having safely returned from a voyage to Genoa. As soon as the anchor was dropped and the sails were furled, the captain, Reuben Hawkshaw, a cousin of Master Begg's, took his place in the boat, accompanied by his son, Roger, a lad of sixteen, and was rowed by two sailors to the landing place. They were delayed for a few minutes, there by the number of Reuben's acquaintances, who thronged round to shake him by the hand. But as soon as he had freed himself of these, he stirred up the narrow street from the quays to the house of Master Diggory. Reuben Hawkshaw was a tall, powerfully built man, weather-beaten and tanned from his many comings and goings upon the sea, with a voice that could be heard in the loudest storm, and a fierce look, but, as his men knew, gentle and kind at heart, though very daring, and having, as it seemed, no fear of danger from either man or tempest. Roger was large-boned and loosely jointed, and was likely some day to fill out into as big a man as his father, who stood over six feet two without his shoes. Reuben was wont to complain that he himself was too big for shipboard. If a crew were men wholly of my size, he would say, a ship would be able to carry but a scant crew, for, lie as they close as they would, there would be not room for a full complement below. For indeed, in those days, space was precious, and on board a ship, men were packed well nigh as close as they could lie, having small thought of comfort, and being well content if there was room to turn without angering those lying next on either side. The merchant, who was so stout and portly that he offered a strong contrast to his cousin, rose from his desk as the latter entered. "'I'm glad indeed to see you back, Cousin Reuben, and trust that all has fared well with you.' "'Indifferent well, Cousin Diggory,' We have a good stock of Italian goods on board, but as, of course, these took up but a small portion of her hold, I put into Cadiz on my way back. There I filled up three score barrels of Spanish wine, which will, I warrant me, return good profit on the price I paid for them. And you have met with no accidents or adventures, Reuben? Not more than is useful. We had a fight with some Moorish pirates, who coveted the goods with which, as they doubtless guessed, we were laden. But we beat them off stoutly, with a loss of only six men killed among us. We had bad weather coming up the Portugal coast, and had two men washed overboard, and we had another stabbed in a drunken brawl in the street. And besides these, there are, of course, many who were wounded in the fight with the moors, and in the drunken frays ashore, but all are doing well, and the loss of a little blood will not harm them, so our voyage may be termed an easy and pleasant one. That is well, the merchant said, in a tone of satisfaction. We cannot expect a voyage like this to pass without accident. And how are you, Roger? he asked, turning to the boy, who was standing near the door with his cap in his hand, until it should please his elders to address him. I am well, thank you, Master Diggory. It is seldom that anything ails with me. I trust that Mistress Mercy and my cousins are well. You had best go upstairs and see them for yourself, Roger. Your father and I have weighty matters to talk over and would fain be alone. Roger was glad to escape from the merchant's counting-house, and bowing to his cousin, went off with a quiet step, which, after he had closed the door behind him, was changed into a rapid bound as he ascended the stairs. "'Gently, Roger,' Mrs. Begg said, as he entered the room where she and her two daughters were sitting at work. "'We are truly glad to see you, but you must remember,' that we stay-at-home people are not accustomed to the boisterous ways of the sea. The reproof was administered in a kindly tone, for indeed, in his delight at being back again, he had forgotten the manners that were expected from a lad of his age on shore. However, he knew that, although Mistress Eggs was somewhat precise in her ways, she was thoroughly kind, and always treated him as if he were a nephew of her own, rather than a young cousin of her husband's. He therefore recovered at once from his momentary confusion and stepped forward to receive the salute Mistress Beggs always gave him on his return from his voyages. Dorothy, Agnes, you remember your cousin, Roger? The two girls, who had remained seated at their work, which had, however, made but little progress since their father had run in, two hours before, to say that the swan was signaled in the sound, now rose, and each made a formal curtsy, and then held up her cheek to be kissed according to the custom of the day. But there was a little smile of amusement on their faces that would have told a close observer that, had their mother not been present, their greeting would have been warmer, and a less ceremonious one. Well, well, Roger, Mistress Beggs went on, it is marvelous to see how fast you grow. Why, it is scarce six months since you sailed away, and you seem half a head taller than you were when you went. And so the swan has returned safely, without damage or peril. No damage to speak up, Cousin Mercy, save for a few shot holes at her hull, and a good many patches on her side, the work of a Moorish corsair, with whom we had a sharp rush, by the way. And was there loss of life, Roger? We have come back nine hands shorter than we sailed with, and there are a few on board still unfit for hard work. And did you fight, Cousin Roger? Dorothy Beggs asked. I did what I could with my bow, until I got alongside and then joined in the melee as well as I could. The heathen fought bravely, but they were not a match for our men, being wanting in weight and strength, and little able to stand up against the crushing blows of our axes. But they are nimble and quick with their curved swords, and the fierceness of their faces and their shouting would have put men out of countenance who had less reason to be confident than ours. And the trading has gone well, asked Mister. Beggs, who was known to have a keen eye to the main chance. I believe that my father is well satisfied, Cousin Mercy, and that the venture has turned out fully as well as he looked for. That is well, Roger. Do you girls go on with your work? You can sew while you are listening. I will go and see that the preparations for dinner are going on regularly, for the maids are apt to give way to talk and gossip when they know that the swan is in. As soon as she had left the room, the two girls threw down their work, and running across to Roger, saluted him most heartily. That is a much better welcome, Roger said, than the formal greetings you before gave me. I wonder what Cousin Mercy would have said had she chanced to come in again. Mother guessed well enough what it would be when we were alone together, Dorothy said, laughing. She always thinks it is right on special occasions to keep us to our manners and to make us sure that we know how it is becoming to behave. But you know well, Roger, that she is not strict with us generally and likes us to enjoy ourselves. When we are staying up at the farm with Aunt Peggy, she lets us run about as we will, and never interferes with us, save when our spirits carry us away altogether. I think we should be glad if we always lived in the country. But now, Roger, let us hear much more about your voyage, and the fight with the Moors. Are they black men? Not at all, Dorothy. They are not very much darker than our own fishermen, when they are bronzed by the sun and wind. There are black men who live somewhere near their country and there were several of these fighting with them. These blacks are bigger men than the Moors, and have thick lips and wide mouths. I believe that they live as slaves among the Moors, but those who were with them fought as bravely as they did, and it needed a man with a stout heart to engage with them, so ugly were their faces. Were you not terrified, Roger? I was frightened at first, Dorothy, and felt a strange weakness in my knees as they began to swarm up the ship's side, but it passed off when the scuffle began. You see, there was no time to think about it. We all had to do our best, and even had I been frightened ever so badly, I hoped that I should not have showed it, for it would have brought some shame upon my father as well as myself. But in truth, I thought little about it. One way or the other, there they were, on the deck, and had to be driven back again, and we set about the work like Englishmen and honest men, and, thanks to our pikes and axes, we had not very much trouble about it especially once we became fairly angered on seeing some of our friends undone by the heathen. I myself would rather go through two or three such fights than encounter such another storm as we had off the coast of Portugal. For four days. It seemed that we must be lost. The waves were of such exceeding bigness, far surpassing anything I had ever seen before. My heart was in my mouth scores of times. And over and over again, I thought that she would never rise again. So great was the weight of the water that poured over her. Truly it was the mercy of God which alone saved us, for I believe that even my father thought the ship would be beaten to pieces, though he kept up a show of confidence in order to inspire the men. However, at the end of the fourth day, the gale abated. But it was days before the great sea went down, the waves coming in long, regular hills which seemed to me as big as those which we have here in Devonshire, but smooth and regular, so that while we rolled mightily, there was naught to fear from them. I should not like to be a sailor, Agnes said. It would be far better, Roger, were you to come into our father's counting-house. You know, he would take you into his business. Did cousin Reuben desire it? But Roger laughed. I should make but a poor penman, Agnes. I love the sea dearly and it is seldom that we have such gales to meet as that. And after all, it is no worse to be drowned than it is to come to any other death. I am well content, cousin, with matters as they are, and would not stay ashore and spend my life in writing, not to be as rich as the greatest merchant in Plymouth. I almost wish, sometimes, I had been born a Spaniard or a Portugal, for then I might have a chance of sailing to wondrous new countries, instead of voyaging only in European waters. It seems to me that you have plenty to see as it is, Roger, Dorothy said. I do not say nay to that, Roger assented. But I do not see why Spain and Portugal should claim all the Indies, East and West, and keep all others from going there. But the Pope has given the Indies to them, Dorothy said. I don't see that they were the Pope's to give, Roger replied. That might do for the King and his minister, Wolsey, and the bishops. But when in time all the people have read as we do, Master Wycliffe's Bible, they will come to see that there is no warrant for the authority the Pope claims, and then we may, perhaps, take our share of these new discoveries. Hush, Roger, you should not speak so loud about the Bible. You know that there are many who read it. It is not a thing to be spoken of openly, and that it would bring us all into sore trouble were anyone to hear us speak so freely as you have done. There has been burning of Lollards and they say that Wolsey is determined to root out all the followers of Wycliffe. "'It will take him some trouble to do that,' Roger said, shrugging his shoulders. "'Still, I will be careful, Dorothy, for I would not on any account bring trouble upon you here. But, thank heaven, England is not Spain, where men are forever being tortured and burned for their religion. The English would never put up with that. It may be that there will be persecution.' But, methinks, it is rather those whose opinions lead them to make speeches that are regarded as seditious, and who stir up the people into discontent, who fall into trouble, and that, as long as the folks hold their own opinions in peace and quiet, and trouble not others, neither king nor cardinal will seek to interfere with them. It is not so in Spain. There, upon the slightest suspicion that a man or woman holds views differing from those of the priests, he is dragged away and thrown into the prisons of the Inquisition, and tortured and burned. Mistress Mercy now returned, and she and the girls busied themselves in laying the table for dinner. That evening, after Mistress Mercy, the girls, and Roger had retired to bed, Reuben Hawkshaw and his cousin had a long talk together, concerning the next voyage of the swan. After Master Diggory had discussed the chances of a voyage to the Low Countries, or another trip to the Mediterranean, Reuben who had been silently listening to him, said, Well, Cousin Diggory, to tell you the truth, I have been turning over a project that seems to me to offer a chance of greater profit, though I deem it not without a risk. That is the case, of course, with all trading affairs. And, as you know, the greater the risk, the greater the profit. So the question to be considered is whether the profit is in fair proportion to the risk run. I think that it is, in this case and I am ready to risk my life in carrying it out. It is for you to consider whether you are ready to risk your venture. What is it, Ruben? There are no other voyages that I know of, unless indeed you think of sailing up to Constantinople and trading with the Grand Turk. My thoughts go farther afield still, Diggory. It is a matter I have thought over for some time, when I was at cadiz The other day, I made many inquiries, and these have confirmed me in my opinions on the matter. You know that the Spaniards are gaining huge wealth from the Indies. And I heard at Cadiz that, after the conquest they made a year's sense of the island, they call Cuba. The stories of precious things brought home were vast indeed. As you know, they bring from their gold and spices and precious woods, and articles of native workmanship all kinds. I know that, Reuben, and also that, like dogs in the manger, they suffer none others to sail those seas, and that no English ship has ever yet traversed those waters. That is so, Diggory, but by all I hear, the number of islands is large, and there are reports that there lies farther west a great land from which it is they procure chiefly the gold and silver and precious things. Now it seems to me that were the matter secretly conducted, so that no news could be sent to Spain a ship might slip out and cruise there, dealing with the natives and return richly stored with treasures. The swan is a fast sailor, and, did she fall in with the Spanish ships, would show them a clear pair of heels. Of course, she would avoid the places where the Spaniards have forts and garrisons, and touch only at those at which, I hear, they trade but little. And he took out a scroll from his bosom, unrolled it, and showed it to be a map. This I purchased for ten gold pieces of a Spanish captain who had come to poverty and disgrace from his ship being cast away while he was asleep in liquor in his cabin, a fault which is rare among the Spaniards, and therefore thought all the more of it. I met him in Cadiz, at a wine shop near the port. He told me his story as we drank together, for he spoke Dutch, having traded much with the Low Countries. He took out a map, To show me some of the places at which he had had adventures, I said that the thing was curious and would like to buy it of him if he was disposed to sell. He said that it would be as much as his life were worth to part with it to an Englishman, and indeed that it was only captains of ships trading in those seas who were allowed to have them, seeing that all matters connected with the islands were held as a state secret. After some trouble and chaffering, however, and to sell it to me for ten gold pieces this is the copy it is exact for i compared it with the original before i paid for it now here you see are laid down the position and bearing of all the islands together with all the ports and places where the spaniards have their settlements this line over here represents the mainland but it is as you see but vaguely drawn seeing that except at one or two points the Spaniards themselves have but little knowledge of it. Now it seems that, with the help of this, I might so navigate the swan as to avoid much risk of falling in with the dons, and might yet make a shift to fill up the ship with goods of all kinds, such as would sell here for great prices. I know, of course, that were we taken we should be killed without mercy, but in the first place they would have to catch us, which would not be easy, and in the second to capture us. Which methinks would be more difficult still, seeing that a crew of stout Devonshire lads, fighting with halters round their necks, would give a good account of themselves, even if overhauled by a great Spanish galleon. What do you think of the scheme, Cousin Diggory? It is a perilous one, certainly, Reuben, the merchant replied, after a long silence. There is the risk of the loss of the ship and all her freight, and there is the risk of the loss of your life, and of those of the crew. And I would rather lose even the swan, Reuben, than that harm should come to you and Roger. And then it may be well that, even if you carried the scheme to a successful end, and returned laden with wealth, the king and his counsellors, when the matter came to their ears, which it would be sure to do on your return, for it would make a prodigious talk, might be grievously offended, accuse us of embroiling England with Spain, confiscate the cargo visit me with fine and imprisonment and treat you and the crew as pirates i do not fear that reuben said our relations with spain have grown cold lately and there is talk of peace between us and france in the next place i should say that the king would be mightily glad to see a chance of us english having a finger in this pie that the spaniards want to keep it to themselves and that he will perceive that the great advantage will arise our obtaining a share of the trade of the Indies. There is a rare jealousy in the country at the Spaniards and the Portugals keeping all the trade of both the Indies in their hands, and methinks that, even if he judged it necessary to make a show of displeasure against the men who led the way in this manner, there would in the end be much honor as well as profit in this venture. It is a grave manner, Reuben, and one not to be undertaken without much thought and calculation. Still, I own that the proposal is a tempting one, and that the possession of this map, which I will examine at my leisure, would help you much in your enterprise. Truly, as you say, although, the king might frown, there would be much honor as well as profit in being the first English merchant to dispatch a ship to the Spanish main. I love not the Spaniards, and like all Englishmen, who think as I do on matters of religion, have viewed with much disfavor our alliance with men who are such cruel persecutors of all who are not of their religion. I hate them, Reuben Hawkshaw said energetically. They swagger as if they were lords of the world, and hold all others as of no account besides them. If you resolve on this enterprise, I shall, of course, do my utmost to avoid them. But should they try to lay hand on us... I shall be right glad to show them that we are Englishmen hold ourselves fully a match for them. Well, well, we must not think of that, Diggory Biggs said hastily. But, nevertheless, cousin, if the swan sails for those seas, I will see that she is well provided with ordnance and small arms, so that she shall be able to hold her own with those who would meddle with her. That is all I ask, Diggory. We shouldn't meddle with them. If they do not meddle with us, But if they treat us as pirates, to be slain without form of trial, they must not blame us if we act as pirates when they come upon us. They hold that they are beyond the law, when they are once beyond sight of land going westward, and we have only to take them at their word. As to piracy, if the things that are whispered as to their cruelty to the natives be true, pirates are an innocent and kindly folk compared to them. They openly proclaim that all found in these seas, which they claim is their own, will be treated as enemies and slain without mercy. And we shall be, therefore, fully justified in treating as an enemy any Spanish ship that we may come across, and holding her as a fair prize, if we are strong enough to take her. But you must not go out with that intent, Reuben, if I fit out the swan to go to the Indies, it is that she may trade honestly with such natives as are ready to trade with her and not that she wage war against the Spaniards. "'I quite understand that, Cousin Diggory,' Reuben Hawkshaw said with a grim smile. "'And that also is my intent, if the Spaniards will but let me adhere to it. "'Only if we are attacked, and must defend ourselves. "'If they try to capture us, and we beat them, "'it is but natural that we should capture them. "'Against that I have nothing to say, Reuben. "'I can find no authority in Scripture, "'for the Spaniards claiming a portion of the seas as their right.' The world is all, as it seems to me, open to trade, and neither the Pope nor anyone else has the right to parcel it out for the exclusive use of one or two nations. As we all know, the seas within a mile or two of shore are held to belong naturally to those who own the land, but that is a different thing altogether to holding that more than half the seas, inasmuch as we know of them, are to be held as private property by Spaniards and Portugals. Well, we will say no more about it at present. There is plenty of time to think it over while the swan is unloading. I certainly do not like to take so great a risk as this would be on my own shoulders, but if I could get two or three others to join me, I should be willing enough to embark upon it. I need not tell you, Diggory, that it behooves you to be right careful as to those whom you may broach it. Remember that an incautious word. Might ruin the enterprise altogether. If so much as a whisper of it reached the ear of the Spanish ambassador in London, he would apply to the king to put a stop to it. And whatever King Harry might think of it, he could hardly permit the swan to sail in the face of such remonstrance, for to do so would assuredly embroil him with Spain. I will be careful, Reuben, for I see this as well as you do, and shall only speak to men who have before now worked with me in joint adventures, and on whose discretion I can surely rely. I will talk the matter over with them, Reuben, first. And if they appear favorably disposed, you shall meet them here, show them your map, and explain your intentions fully to them. If three others join me in equal shares, I shall propose that, as it is your idea, and as you have obtained this map, you shall have an equal share with each of us in the business and shall, in addition to your pay as master, take one-fifth of the profits, after payment of expenses. Will that content you? Right well, Cousin Diggory, and from this moment I shall, I can tell you, regard myself as a rich man. The unloading of the swan occupied some time. There was no undue haste in those days. The bales were hoisted by whips from the hold, and then carried up to Master Begg's warehouse. The sailors had earned a fair time for repose after the hardships of the voyage, and took matters easily, as it was more than a week before the swan's hold was empty during that time. the merchant had not made any allusion to Reuben as to their conversation on the evening after the swan came into port, but Reuben was neither surprised nor anxious at the silence he knew that his cousin, although an enterprising, was a cautious man and had hardly hoped to find his proposal so favourably entertained. He had looked for absolute refusal at first, and expected that he would only arrive at his end after a long dispute and discussion. Therefore, he doubted not that Diggory was turning the matter over and over in his mind, settling the details, and perhaps broaching the matter to the merchants he had spoken of. The swan, once empty, was laid up on the shore, where she dried at low tide, so that she could have her seams caulked and a coat of pitch laid on below the waterline. And made tight and sound for any voyage on which she might be dispatched. Reuben Hawkshaw had lost his wife years before, and when in port at Plymouth, always occupied lodgings in a house a short distance from that of his cousin, spending his evenings mostly at Master Diggory's, but refusing to take his breakfast or dinner there. I know what is what, cousin, he would say when the merchant pressed him and Roger to come to breakfast or dinner. Women are women, and as is only right, they hold to the nicety of things, and nothing displeases them more than for people to come in late for their meals. When I am work, I work, and if, when the clock strikes, the hour for meals, and I am in the middle of a job, I see that it is finished before the men knock off. Then there is the matter of washing and cleaning up, for one gathers much dust and dirt in the hold of a ship, so that I do what I would. Roger and I could never reckon upon being punctual, and the matter would weigh on my mind when I ought to be thinking of other things. No, no, Diggory, we will be free men, taking our bite and sup on board as we can make shift to get them. And then, when work is over, coming in with clean hands and a clear mind to supper with you, when the swan's hold is empty, it will be time enough to talk about amusement. The evening after the unloading of the cargo was completed, Master Diggory said to his wife, Get the table cleared as soon as you can, Mercy, and bring two flasks of the last batch of Spanish wine out of the cellar, and put them and some cups on the board. I have two or three friends coming in to talk over a matter of business with Reuben and me. As soon as the table was cleared, Roger asked permission of his aunt to take the cousins for a walk upon the hoe. This was readily granted, as there was no other room in which they could well be bestowed and having set the wine upon the table, Dame Mercy retired to look after some domestic matters, of which she always found an abundance to occupy her. In a short time, Master Turnbull, Master Straytham, and Master Winslow, three worshipful traders of Plymouth, arrived. "'Cousin Reuben,' Master Diggory said, "'I have spoken to these good friends of mine in respect of that venture which you proposed to me, and they would fain hear more of it from your own lips.' You can speak with confidence before them, for whether they agree to cast in their lot with us or not, no word of this matter will pass their lips. Reuben addressed himself to this task, and that at much greater detail than he had given when first speaking of the matter to Diggory. He told them what he had gathered from the sea captains and others as to the articles with which the dons traded with their natives, that they were for the most part cheap and common and that the amount required for a sufficient stock of such merchandise would be very small. Small hand mirrors, strings of colored glass beads, brass rings and trinkets, colored handkerchiefs, and bright cloths were the articles chiefly used in barter. Knives and axes were greatly prized, the natives considering iron to be more valuable than silver or gold. Small bells and brass vessels were also valued and iron spear and arrowheads were eagerly sought for. But the Spaniards were chary of providing such goods, seeing that they might be used in conflicts against themselves. Then he produced a list of the stores that would be required for the ship and crew. In this matter, he said, you will think, perhaps, that my demands are excessive, but I am of opinion that money in this way would be very well spent. As a rule, though, I say it before men accustomed to victualling ships. Our crews are vilely provided for. Salt meat they must eat, for no other can be obtained at sea, but it should be of good quality. Likewise the other provisions. I want not biscuits that are alive with maggots, nor moldy flour, nor peas or other things that cattle would turn up their noses at. I want everything to be the very best of its kind, with cider good and sound, and in fair abundance. This is not an ordinary voyage. We shall be away for many months, maybe for a year or two, and unless the men are well fed, they will assuredly lose their health, and likely enough become mutinous. If we come upon a Spanish ship, when three parts of the crew are weak with scurvy, we shall make but a poor fight of it. Therefore, I want to keep my men in good strength and in good heart, and to do this they must be well fed. Such a voyage as this no English ship has ever made before, and cooped up as we shall be in the swan, for we must carry a great crew. Everything depends upon there being no fair ground for grumbling. Many a ship has been lost from the crew being weakened by scurvy, and if you are to bring this enterprise to a good end, I say that there must be no stint in the matter of provisions, and that all must be the very best of their kind. I trust that, once out there, we shall be able to obtain an abundance of fruit and vegetables from the natives, for these are things above all necessary to keep men's blood sweet on shipboard then as to arms i think we should carry twelve pieces six of a side of which four should be of good size and yet not too large to be quickly handled in the manner of weight the spaniards are sure to have the advantage of us but if we can shoot much more quickly than they can it will equalize matters then of course there will be bows and arrows i do not hold greatly to the new musketoons a man can shoot six arrows while he can fire one of them, and that with a straighter and truer aim. Though it is true, that he can carry somewhat farther. Then, of course, there will be pikes and boarding axes, and a good stock of powder and balls for the cannon. These are the complete lists I have made out. Now I hold that we should carry from eighty to a hundred men. These I should pay only the ordinary rate of wage, but each should have an interest in this venture, according to his rank, as to the profits i would leave it to you my masters to reckon but seeing that in fair trade one can get gold to say nothing of silver weight for weight for iron and other things in proportion you can judge for yourselves what it will amount to to say nothing of the chance of our falling in with the spanish treasure-ship which may be rash enough regarding us as an easy prize to fall foul of us There is no doubt that the profits will be great if you return safely home, Master Hawkshaw, Nicholas Turnbill said, but the chances of that seem but small. I think the chances are good enough to risk my life upon, Master Turnbill, Reuben replied, and no man can show greater confidence than that. This is the map of which my cousin Diggory has no doubt spoken of to you. You see, the islands are many, and some of them great and that the places at which the Spaniards have ports are few in comparison. We have to avoid these, but anywhere else we can open trade with the natives. If we are chased and find the place too hot for us, we can make a way to the mainland, and cruising along there, may come upon places that the Spaniards have never visited, and may there gather great store of gold and silver, without danger. But I wish no one, and certainly not my cousin Diggory, to enter upon this affair unless with confidence and good heart I would far rather take a horse and travel to Bristol and lay my scheme before some of the traders there. This idea was most distasteful to the traders, for Plymouth regarded Bristol with great jealousy, and Diggory Beggs at once said, No, no, Reuben, my friend, Master Nicholas Turnbill did not mean that he regarded your scheme as hopeless, only that the risks were doubtless great. But we all know that to earn great profit one must run such risk. And the venture, divided between four of us would not be a very heavy one, that is to say, not beyond what we are justified in periling. Would you leave us for a while, Reuben? We will examine these lists that you have made and reckon upon the total cost, and we shall see the better how much we shall have to contribute to make upon our venture. Reuben nodded and putting on his hat, left the room, saying, "In an hour." I will return and then strolled over to a tavern much frequented by the masters of the ships in port end of chapter 1 recording by ryan chair